Indeed, it is our prayer to trust in Jesus more and more, and you'll see an opportunity for us to do that again through the text we'll be studying over the next few moments from the book of Genesis, chapter 29, and we'll look at Genesis 29, 31, all the way over to chapter 30, verse 24, and I think you'll see as we read this together why I am trusting Jesus for this particular text, because it may be one of the most difficult in Genesis, but that always makes for a great study together. Genesis 29, verses 31 through chapter 30, verse 24, and despite the length of the text, I'm going to read it all up front. I think we need the full picture. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come, so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy, so she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you would have taken my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son, 
Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and Jacob bore a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Have you ever noticed that weird tendency that we all have to stare at a car wreck? The the rubbernecking that takes place where we would even put our own lives at risk to see whether or not someone else has lost their life or maybe their life has been spared. I've never seen any formal research on the topic. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Of what draws us to stare at a wreck like that, to be so beholden to an accident. But I would assume maybe three reasons we tend to look uh, when we drive by. Uh, One is probably just simply novelty. It's not every day that you see a car turned upside down or on fire. It's just, it's not a normal sight. It's something different and Our mind's eye is naturally drawn to that which is unfamiliar to us. But I think there's more to it than that. I think when we see a scene of horrific proportion on the side of the highway or at the intersection, we're also looking upon it for safety. Uh, There's a part of us that that wants to to take a lesson from this and and figure out, like, okay, how do we keep this from happening uh, to ourselves? Uh, normally in my car, it, it goes with a speech from my wife saying, that's why we don't text and drive, or children, that's why we wear our seatbelts. It's for safety. And then maybe there's a third reason as well, I think it's human and normal for us just to express sympathy. We're concerned about the people that are there. We're looking to celebrate any life. Uh, that has been preserved, or we will sorrow at life lost. But at the end of the day, we're cheering for a win despite the adversity that we see in this wreckage. Friends, what we have here in this particular text is nothing short of a horrific car wreck. It is total devastation on a textual level. No one reads this and thinks, what a great story. This sure warms my heart. We think, this is absolutely horrendous. Why in the world is this even here in in the text? And, And what in the world are we supposed to learn from this? It's like we're looking at a car wreck. And part of it indeed is novelty. I mean, a polygamous marriage concubinage, surrogacy, slavery, all of the elements that that we would just like hate as 21st century Judeo, modern Judeo-Christian readers. But there's more to it than just novelty. That's not why we, we look upon this with such wonder. But I think part of it is indeed, at least through an American lens, safety. We think, this is really bad, And I don't want this to happen. So the way we normally read this particular passage in Genesis 
is as a cautionary tale. All right, children, you understand this is why you wear your seatbelt. Or understand, children, this is why you only marry one wife. (laughs) Bad things will happen. This is why we don't do slavery. But I think there's more to the text than safety. There's a part of us, though, if we're looking at it appropriately, where we look upon this car wreck of a scene with sympathy. And we can see expressions of God's grace and His kindness, despite the foolish actions of all involved. For the original ancient Near Eastern Hebrew reader, believe it or not, they would have been more prone to look at this text through a lens of sympathy than even that of safety. They would have seen this passage as something to celebrate, not just something to learn from. Now that's hard for us. We have a huge cultural gap between the way we read this text and the way people read this text thousands of years ago. And I want to help you with that just right at the outset by acknowledging that there is indeed some moral and some familial issues with this text. I'm not asking you to just like check your your modern sensibilities at the door and let's just dive right in. I'm acknowledging from the outset that what we have here is actually a deviation from the way that God originally had created things. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, he created male and female, not females. He gave one bride to one man, and this was the creation ideal. And everywhere you see polygamy happening in the book of Genesis, after the original creation ideal, it is always cast in a negative light. I mean, the first one is this guy, Lamech, who basically beats his chest. He's this brutal guy, and he brags on the fact that he has two wives. He's known as being a violent man. And then we see what happens when Abraham gets involved in a situation like this, and it causes all types of horror in his home as Hagar is forced out into the wilderness and comes back. And then we see this, or the text uh, just a few chapters before this, where Esau, the, the veritable bad guy in the Jacob and Esau narratives, is the one who causes distress in his family because he takes upon himself two Hittite wives. And the stories continue from there. You see what multiple wives does to the life of David, for example. It totally ruins his effective ministry. And then we get back to the New Testament, and then we have the Lord Jesus Christ himself reaffirm for us the original creation ideal of one man and one woman in his teaching on adultery. He says, this is the way that it has always been intended. And guess what? The the New Testament authors beyond that, Paul especially, will even say, hey, what God intends in a relationship with his church is a committed, monogamous relationship. It is one Jesus married to one people of God. It is supposed to be exclusively loyal to that group. This is the way that God had always created it to be. But man and woman still defy God's plan here. And so what you need to do as you're approaching this is you need to understand that, yes, let's acknowledge the elephant in the room, they are working outside of what God had originally intended. 
And friends, it's not that hard to do that. Frankly, anytime you're watching or reading history or watching a period drama, you do the same thing. No student that I know of will actually like read about the Revolutionary War and then just say, what a travesty, there were slaves at that time. That's not how we do history. We understand that slavery would eventually be abolished, and it needed to be abolished, but we still can check our moral grid for a moment and appreciate the larger storyline of what's taking place. Or I think of just... Uh, the recent fascination with different period dramas uh, like Downton Abbey. Uh, If you understand something like this where you actually have a lower class of people, it's a functional class system in which somebody who is poor, they're called a downstairs person, is never supposed to like exert influence with the upstairs people. People watched it for years and nobody had any problem with this. That there was a functional inequality between the downstairs people and the upstairs people. Uh, There was a time to check what we were, like the broader ethical narrative and focus on the storyline. We could enter into it. And frankly, I don't want to condone this, but most Americans, even Christian Americans, do this regularly with the entertainment that they ingest. I mean, if you take just a couple of the most popular comedies in the last 30 years, like The Office and Friends... Many of you have probably seen every episode. You were able to jump in on those narratives even though it regularly displayed a plot line that revolved around immorality or fornication. Do you get the point? So if you can do that with friends, and if you can do that with The Office, and you can do that with Downton Abbey, and you can do that with the Revolutionary War, can we not also do that with the biblical text? Let's, step, let's be good historians for a moment and like, let's appreciate this from the perspective of the original readers. They were able to overcome this gap. It would eventually become clear that this polygamy was a horrific thing. But what were they focusing on then? Let's say that we could actually make it past this, this cultural obstacle. So what were they excited about? Let me tell you what they were excited about. They were excited about their nation coming into existence. I mean, from the very beginning, God kept promising these patriarchs a nation. He kept promising that there would be a multitude of people who would bless the entire earth, but there's this weird thing happening. Every one of the patriarchs' wives up to this point have struggled with what? Fertility. Infertility. They can't have a child. And guess what? Then they do have a child, and it's only like one child or two children. If you're going to have like a multitude, you've got to have more kids. <laughs> and it's finally here that we see the birth of 12 children, 11 of whom will eventually represent the nation of Israel. Those children of Israel standing on the plains of Moab, first hearing Moses' words here in Genesis, are delighted that they have come into existence even through such unfortunate and even horrific circumstances. I mean, their tribes bore these names like they saw God at work here in this text, establishing a nation, founding for them that which He had promised. And there's something else going on in the mind of the reader because the greatest expression of blessing in the Old Testament The one that they're looking at most particularly in this text, and if you don't get this, you won't get the story, is the blessing of bearing children. 
There was no higher expression of God's grace in the Old Testament than for someone to enter into the creation blessing of childbearing. Now that could be a painful subject for some in this room who have not been able to have children of their own or others who have chosen not to have children. But I want you to think about things from the original context. Childbearing was essential because in Acts, I mean, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 1, he says, as image bearers of God, you're going to represent me. And what do I do? I spread life. And guess what? I'm going to give you the capacity to spread life. This will be a blessing for you. You will be fruitful and multiply and spread yourself through the earth. And there wasn't just theological motivation to have children, but there was also a social obligation to have children because this was the way that you got clout with other people. If we here in America brag on the stuff that we have, if it's like how good our house looks and what kind of car we drive that gets us clout with other people, in that culture it was how many children you had. That's what got you status in those days because it wasn't just an honorable thing to do, but it functionally translated into some economical benefit because now you have workers. (laughs) You need people who can like overcome like the obstacles of whatever the farming needs you had and the shepherding needs that you had, and you need some workers. One guy said, children are a blessing because of this. They have one mouth and two hands. If you train children right, they are a blessing. Yeah, sure, they take, but they should contribute even more. And so that was the way that they raised their children, to be a blessing. One mouth, two hands. And so then finally there was personal benefit, because I've mentioned this several times. They needed children because there was no retirement system. There was no government welfare. If you wanted to be cared for in your old age, you didn't send someone to a retirement home. You had to have children so that you could die an honorable death as you grew inevitably weaker. Children were an essential expression of God's blessing. And so what you need to view this as, as we approach this text, and we'll do it quickly, is that The fact that life is coming into the world is an expression of God pouring out his blessing on the patriarchs as he had promised. So this is all about how do we experience God's blessing. They were reading this on the plains of Moab about to enter into the promised land wondering how will we experience God's blessing. And here we see another picture of how the sovereign and good hand of God will work in the lives of his people. And so that's what you should be listening out for. There's three scenes or sections in this. And again, I won't give it to you ahead of time. Listen to the story and let's see how God passes on his blessings to his people. Now, three scenes, the first of which is Leah's blessing amid adversity. Leah, Leah, whatever you want to call her, she was someone who knew the blessing of God from the very outset. It says in verse 31 of chapter 29, when the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, you're going to see, that, and we already saw just this nightmare of a circumstance for Leah, whose father had forced her into this marriage 
under the cloak of darkness and said, all right, we're going to teach this guy a lesson. You're going to get married first. I mean, just read the previous few verses. It was not her choice to be a part of this, and yet honoring her father, she snuck into the marriage bed of her younger sister. She's kicked out. Now Leah's in, and she is married to someone who doesn't love her or care for her and never wanted her in the first place. And the text makes it clear that she is absolutely unloved. It even says she was hated. Hated. Now, you need to understand, like, theologically, at least in the Old Testament mind, like, the word hated doesn't mean, like, totally despised. It just means of two options, this was the least loved. Because I say that only to say in the previous text, it just said that he loved Rachel more. It did not say that he did not love Leah at all. I am only referencing that because of what will happen later in the book of Romans where it says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. People think, well, how in the world could God ever hate anybody? It means that the hated one is the one who didn't experience the special love. In this particular case, Leah was the one who was on the outside. There may have been some basic provision for her. He didn't divorce her. He didn't kick her out. But she is the unwanted woman in this polygamous relationship. And we're beginning to see from the very beginning that this whole polygamy thing does not work out well, especially for the women involved. Despite what the Learning Channel would tell us from episodes of Sister Wives, this is not some happy and harmonious home. There's a a woman here who feels like she's on the outside, and as she names every one of her children, she's saying, oh, I hope this time he'll love me. I hope this time he'll care for me. It, It is a nightmare for her. To capture the emotion of this, it reminds me of the musings of Sophie Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy's wife. She was the famous unloved wife of this brilliant literary genius. And she writes in her journal, It is painful and humiliating. I am nothing but a useless creature with morning sickness, a big belly, two rotten teeth and a bad temper, a battered sense of dignity, and a love which nobody wants and which nearly drives me insane. This is the life of Leah. And yet, God sees her in this unfortunate and deplorable circumstance. And it is because of that that he decides to pour out his blessing on her. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. He made it possible for her to experience the pinnacle blessing understood in the ancient Near East. She is not only going to have one child by natural birth, she will have four in succession. And every name of the child gives, her, gives you an idea of what Leah would attribute this success to. Now, she laments in every one of these, but she also lauds praise to God. Listen out for these names. The first one is Reuben, which in Hebrew means see, a son. And she, why did she name him that? Because she says in verse 32, the Lord has looked or seen my affliction. Now my husband will love me. Why did she have that first child? Because Yahweh, because God saw her. Uh, the second name, go look down at it. You see that she actually calls the next one Simeon. Uh, why did she call him Simeon? Uh, because it sounds like the Hebrew word for here. For those of you in the Old Testament seminar, Randy mentioned this morning the Shema, the, the listen, the Deuteronomy 6.4. 
So what we have here is Shemin. This is Simeon. His name means heard. And what's she saying here? Why did I have this second child? God heard me. She's giving the glory to God. She recognizes that the pinnacle experience of blessing was from God's almighty hand. Then you see the same thing in the third son. She this time says in verse 34, This time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And so she called his name Levi. Which, if you look at the little note in your Bible, down at the bottom, it'll say Levi. Sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. She, but who's she giving credit for here? God. God is the one who's intervening in this. And then the pinnacle is verse 4. This time she doesn't even mention anything negative. What does she say? I'm going to name him Judah because this time I will praise the Lord. Judah just means praise. She recognizes by this fourth child, this is all of Yahweh. The the blessing, it comes from him. He has pity upon the unfortunate. And not only does she get to experience blessing, but as history would begin to unfold, we're going to see that in this particular case, she, the unwanted woman, is actually going to be the one who would give birth to the two most significant offices in the nation of Israel, the priestly and the kingly lines. Levi, from which we get the book Leviticus, the priests, and then Judah, the one from whom David would come, the one from whom Jesus Christ himself would come, the one, the line that was promised would rule and reign over the earth forever. Like, this is coming from her, the unwanted. And so the blessing of God, how does it come? How do we see it like unfolding to this next generation? Does it come from an ideal home? Does it come from a great strategic plan? Like if you've got a great five-year plan, you will then experience the blessing of God. Does it come from just a loving marriage? Like you've got the perfect marriage and then you will experience God's blessing. No, it comes from the sovereign hand of God upon the unfortunate. Those who know themselves to be broken, those who know that they have experienced just duress in this life and need God are the ones who actually experience His blessing. And just as God sovereignly gave to Leah, He sovereignly stopped giving to Leah. Look at the last part of verse 30 excuse me, the last part of verse 35. It says that she ceased bearing. God had opened the womb and he had closed it. Which takes us to our second scene. The first one is Leah's blessing amid adversity. The second one here is Rachel and Leah compromising to achieve their own blessing. Leah and Rachel compromising to achieve their own blessing. And for those of you who attend regularly here, there was no way I could come up with some neat little acronym for you guys to get this passage. I apologize. So just hang with me. Leah and Rachel. Here we see compromise. The blessing of God will still come, but they're going to find a workaround. They're going to find a creative way to access the blessing of God. And it all starts off with Rachel. Look at her jealousy in verse 1 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, She envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. That's a strong statement. 
But friends, it isn't that far off. For a woman in the ancient Near East, to to bear children was the pinnacle of one's existence. This is the the highest uh, activity that one could ever participate in. And she is saying that, like, I'd rather die than not have any children. Just having done some research on this to try to get my mind around just Jewish thought, especially when we live in a culture, unfortunately, and this is unbiblical, friends, that says... Children are a burden. you got to think this. You're not excited about this passage because you've been immersed in a culture that says that children are a burden. When my wife walks into a grocery store with five kids and somebody says, I'm sorry, or did you know how that happened? It betrays the fact. You know it does. It betrays the fact that people think that children are an obstacle to happiness. And yet the Bible teaches that they are the opportunity for human happiness. To the degree, like in the, at least in the, the Jewish mind, to not be able to have children as a woman was as good was an as good as death experience. The Jewish primacy of childbearing has continued for thousands of years, and the Talmud notes that the commonly held view of childlessness was a form of death. But they looked at someone as, as functionally dead. Even as, as, as late as 1902, the Jewish encyclopedia notes, to be without children is regarded as the greatest curse. If the greatest curse that we could think of is hell itself, to the Jew for thousands of years, the greatest curse that could ever be experienced on the face of this planet would be a lack of children. And so she says, I'm, I'd rather die. This is a horrific experience. She experiences the love of her husband, but she doesn't have the children. And notice Jacob's theology. In verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. I mean, it's almost like she is accusing him of some kind of impotence or some type of withholding. And he said, Am I in the place of God? who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? I mean, Jacob's no all-star theologian, but he at least gets this one right. He understands that blessing, the blessing of childbearing, comes from God himself. And even though he says that to her, what does she do? Verse 3, what does she do? She finds a workaround. She's not going to resign herself to trusting in God for this. She says, okay, I've got a plan. Everybody else in our day is doing it. Let's go ahead and take my handmaid, who's a slave, let's make her marry you, and she can act as a surrogate for us. Now again, another morally disgusting thing for us, but it was something that was not only popularized by the Jews, the Jews just followed the Mesopotamians in this, it was normal practice, if you couldn't have a child, to marry a concubine, and then to mother or father a child through this person, and guess what, it was just like an adoption. It was not the slave's child. It would actually be the woman's child. And so she takes advantage of the cultural means that are offered to her to find happiness. She says, okay, let's do this thing through surrogacy. And so she uses that, that maid that was given to her and says, all right, enter into a sexual relationship with her and let's get these children. And you know what? She's totally happy working outside the plan of God here. I can't imagine any woman being happy having her husband 
enjoy a sexual relationship with another woman, but she degrades herself to this because she wants the kids that bad. And, and notice the names that she gives to these kids. I mean, she totally celebrates this. She says to the first one in verse 5, Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has judged me and heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan, which sounds like judgment. I've been vindicated. Even though she's working outside the plan of God, God still allowed this to happen. And she feels vindicated. Then she has a second one through Bilhah. And it says, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled my sister and prevailed. And so she calls his name Naphtali, which sounds like wrestling. And you know what, Jacob, I mean, excuse me, Rachel here is thinking, I'm winning. I like my, my like victory is inevitable. I'm on the right track now. I, I'm going to overcome my sister. I, I can't imagine the way that Jacob feels in all of this because he's been reduced to that of a breeding horse. They don't care about their relationship with him. All they care about is having more children than the other person. Again, friends, we, this is a despicable marriage relationship. And yet, despite how horrible it is, listen to this, God still pours out blessing anyway? It gets worse. When you think it couldn't get worse, it actually gets worse. Because Leah, who knew how to experience God's blessing through humility, like has total amnesia, and says, oh, well, you hired your slave out to be a surrogate? Well, guess what? I can do the same thing with my slave. And so then she gives her slave to Jacob as well, and Jacob fathers two more children through these women. And notice Leah's mindset here as you see these names. It's, it's a window psychologically into what's going on. Uh, she says of the two latter kids, notice how all the first ones had to do with God. Here, verse 10 of chapter 30, Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. And she named him Gad. You know what Gad means? Good luck. It's not God anymore. Now, this is happening just because she's fortunate. She just happened to be in the right place at the right time. She's got good luck. And notice the second name. Uh, she says, uh, another son is born, and Leah says, happy am I, for women have called me happy. She doesn't say she's got favor of God. She's just happy that she's respected in the community. And so she calls his name Asher, which means happiness. No acknowledgement of God. Remember those first four? God gets all the credit. Here, Leah's doing this thing on her own. She is selfishly pushing forward with her plan. And guess what? God is still allowing it to happen anyway. They have compromised the integrity of an already compromised marriage. And yet God pours out His blessing in spite of them. So, Rachel and Leah compromise for their own blessing. Right now, we're at eight children. We get to the last four. Third scene. How is God working? How is He pouring out His blessing? How does it come? Does it, does it come through perfect morality? No. Uh, does it come from a lack of envy? No. Uh, blessing comes anyway. And there will be pain for trying to experience the blessing of God outside the ways that he prescribes, and yet he still pours out his blessing and mercy. But now notice positively how Rachel and Leah's blessing will be experienced in rest. 
Rachel and Leah's blessing will be experienced in rest. It's the last scene. And this one's interesting. Look at verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, remember that was the firstborn son of Leah, went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Now this is really cool for us because some of you in here think, oh, I know what a mandrake is. That was that thing in Harry Potter that screamed every time they pulled it out of the ground. Uh, No, friends, that is not what a mandrake is. Uh, a, A mandrake... Uh, in, at least in this culture, was a plant that was believed to be an aphrodisiac and to actually help with fertility. Uh, now, scientifically, we know that this root actually can't help with this. But it was the common belief of the day that it, if you could find this rare plant and partake of it, it would be something of a fertility drug. And frankly, Go into any Whole Foods you want to. People are buying a ton of stuff that they don't know really works anyway. (laughs) So you're not that much smarter than they are. (laughs) But they see it as a fertility drug, a valuable fertility drug, a treatment, if you will, if you want to modernize it. So God, in in his good providence, allows this oldest son to find this mandrake. He runs and gives it to her, Rachel sees it, and now notice the drama that unfolds, because now Leah has some leverage that she's not had in the entire story. And we'll see what she does with it, by the way. Verse 15, but he said to her, is it a small, excuse me, uh, then Rachel said to Leah, when she saw this, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Notice she asked nicely, she just asked for some of them, not for all of them. She's, she hasn't been able to have children. She she wants this fertility treatment, if you will. She's hoping that she can at least have a shot. And notice what Leah says. Uh, She may be ugly, but she's mean too. (laughs) She said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Remember, Leah's barren too. She's not having any more kids at this point. She wants more natural-born children. And Rachel said, and this is weird, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Whatever is going on with this little harem, it seems that Rachel is in charge of the marriage bed. So Jacob has given up on Leah when she figured out when he figured out that this wasn't going anywhere with pregnancy, he stopped spending any time with her intimately. He exclusively focused his attention on Rachel, and now Rachel, who has had all the leverage, loses it because she's so desperate for this fertility treatment. And it's at this point that Leah says, okay, I'll take the upper hand. She says, you're not, you've already taken away my husband, you're not taking away my mandrakes, and She says, okay, I'll give you a night if you'll give me the mandrakes. Now, again, normally we we, we talk about in ancient societies how how women are mistreated, and they often are. But notice here how Jacob is treated. Again, he's treated like an animal. Notice how Leah will speak to him. Verse 16, when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, 
for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And despite this horrific behavior, notice this, God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah gives God the credit again. She said in verse 18, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar, which means wages. Now, nobody's really rejoicing here, by the way, except for the, nation, the tribe of Issachar. <laughs> we all think, wow, this is horrible. But Issachar's thinking, we're here. <laughs> Same thing. It seems like now that Jacob thinks that she's fertile once more, Leah said, uh, Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son, verse 19. And Leah said that God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun, which talks about an endowment. And so she sees this as a gift. And then verse 21, which will set up a story in a few chapters. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Now, where's Rachel in all this? Here's where I really want you to grasp the story. We're bringing this thing to a close. Rachel has tried in this text, like her husband, to do everything within her power to get the blessing of God in a way that she can control. She has done it through arguing and pleading with her husband. She has done it through selling her concubine as a surrogate. And she has done it through selling a night with her husband to get this fertility treatment. She gets the mandrakes. She gets what people in that day would have thought been the, uh, have been the human solution to the problem. And what happens when she finally gets a hold of the fertility meds? The other woman has three children. No, four, excuse me, in succession. Like, how does this happen? I mean, Rachel is out of options at this point. Like, she is trying everything, and she has nothing left within herself to give to experience this blessing from God. And that is exactly where God wants her to be, and that is exactly what God wants us to note in the text, because you'll look at the last two verses of the story. Then, when she's at her lowest, then God remembered Rachel the beautiful Rachel, the one who thought that she had it all, the one who thought that she could figure out her own life, the one who had all the gifts, then God remembered Rachel and what? God listened to her. Now she's resorted to prayer and opened her womb. Does that phrase sound familiar? And opened her womb. It was exactly how the story started. It was exactly how God said from the very beginning that blessing would come, by His sovereign good hand upon those who didn't deserve it. And here, and only here, when, Jacob, I mean, when Rachel is so desperate that the only thing left for her to do is to cry out to God, that is when He remembers her, that is when He showers His grace upon her, that is when she is finally able to experience the blessing of childbirth through her own womb and not the womb of another. Notice how she gives God the credit for this three times. She'll mention the name of God, and she has hardly mentioned it to this point. She conceived and bore a son and said, 
God has taken away my reproach. I no longer am shamed. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. You see it? God remembered. God listened. God took away. And the Lord added. Where does blessing come from? Does it come from the machinations of mankind? Does it come from our scheming and our subtlety and our persistence and our effort and our grit? No. The blessing of God comes from His good hand to the undeserving, to those who have humbled themselves to a point where they recognize that they can't get the blessing apart from Him giving it to them. It is not a matter of human determination and cleverness. Leah receives God's grace in her humble condition and desperation. Rachel receives God's grace in the prayerful lowliness of recognizing she can't get the job done. It's interesting that Martin Luther read this account, and in his commentary on Genesis, he, he makes this kind of exasperated point. He asks a question. He says, Does God have no other occupation left than to have regard for the lowliness of a household? Let me modernize that for you. He's asking, Does God work in any other way? I mean, like it's almost as if Luther is bored. It's like he's seen this record, I mean, he's heard this record play over and over and over again through the book of Genesis up to this point, and he says, does God work in any other way than this, than to actually show grace to the lowly? No, he doesn't. It may sound like a broken record, because it is. He is constantly, the Lord is constantly repeating over and over again in this text and through the entire breadth of scripture that his grace only comes to the undeserving to those who understand themselves to be in need of his grace do you remember that famous new testament passage that the lord resists the proud but gives grace to the what humble friend what what is the key then practically speaking to enjoying the blessing of Almighty God. Is it from our efforts and, and our controlling and conniving? No, it is from our humility, our utter recognition of our need before Him. That, that is where the grace of God comes from. To put it in a way that may be easier to remember, blessing is a matter of His sovereignty, not our striving. Blessing is a matter of His sovereignty, not our striving. And friends, this is true of God's greatest blessing poured out to His people in any age of that of salvation. Salvation doesn't come to he that runs or he that wills, but to he who experiences the mercy of God. There is nothing in and of your puny or my puny little efforts that will get us the grace of God. It only comes when we recognize that we actually need it. None of your good works, none of your efforts will get you in good with Him. It is all of His grace. That oft-quoted passage from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 should regularly ring through our minds. It says, you are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If anyone in here thinks, I am saved because, and then fills in that blank with a first-person pronoun, you are in damnable trouble. 
It is not because you did something, or you tried something, or you accomplished something. And friends, let me even make it this clear. Even your religious things. Going to church doesn't save you. Doing religious activities like Bible reading and prayer doesn't save you. Giving a lot of money to a charity doesn't save you. Making a confession to a priest doesn't save you. Getting baptized doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And He only saves those who know they need saving. And so where does the blessing of God ultimately come from? It comes from Him when we realize how much we need Him. But it's not just the blessing of salvation. Friends, I know that many of you in this room already know what it means to be in Christ, but you long for your life to matter for Him. You're trying to serve Him. You want to see the blessing of God advance in your home and in your marriage and in your community and as you represent Him at work. Like, like you're, you're... Grateful to be saved, but you long to serve in ways that you know that, that God is at work. Friends, it happens the same way. The way that you were saved is also the way that you serve. How are you effective? You are effective when you realize it's not you that brings about the blessing. It's when you know that you're not everything that God had always wanted, but you're actually one who stumbles through and you're in constant need of His help. Sometimes I think that we think that we've got a secret formula, and everybody's written their own recipe, by the way, of how to get the blessing of God. Some of you, because of your backgrounds, and I have a similar one, it's easy for me to think that the blessing of God will come if I read my Bible a certain number of times a week, if I pray a certain number of times a week, if I give a certain amount of money based on my income per year. If I actually like show a certain amount of kindness to my family, and then everything's going to be okay, he's going to actually then pour out his blessing on me. And friends, that's the wrong recipe. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him and his grace. When you realize, I actually don't read my Bible and pray like I should, and I don't give as much money as I could, and I am not as nice to my family as I need to be, and I just need God's help. That's when you know God's blessing. You know what the supreme expression of this reliance is, practically speaking? It's prayer. And you want to know what the ironic thing is? Some of you even make your prayer part of the recipe. You think, because I prayed a certain amount of time, God will now do something for me, as opposed to saying, because I am in desperate need, I must pray. If you ever find yourself like looking at the clock when you're praying, you're probably not aware of how desperately you need God. Friend, need, it's like breathing. I mean, it, it is, I mean, prayer for us is like air for a scuba diver. Like, it is not something like we have to remind ourselves to do. It is something that we are constantly relying upon. And it's of no accident. In both of the unadulterated expressions of God's blessing in this passage, it says God listened to them. He heard them. Friends, what does reliance upon God look like? It looks like us calling out to Him for what we need, not just in the checklist thing in the morning or the pastoral prayer on a Sunday, but through a daily living dependence upon Him, crying out in prayer. And one more practical note, and we'll move on. 
Sometimes this is in private. Sometimes this is in private. I, I realize that Jesus said, enter into your closet and pray. But you know, he also commanded his people to pray with one another. And an area pastorally that I think I regularly fail in, that I want to grow in, is actually praying with people when they tell me they have a need. Could you imagine how that would change, like, the way we left? It'd be awkward for some of the visitors, I'll admit. But if we asked each other, how was your week? And somebody actually answers honestly and says, well, it was pretty horrible, thanks for asking. <laughs> and then they tell you, well, what was going on? And instead of just saying, like, oh, man, that, that stinks, I'm sorry. What if we, just crazy, what if we actually said, you know what, let me pray for that. Would that be a weird thing for a bunch of Christians to be together at church on Sunday and actually pray with one another in light of the struggles that they're facing? It would be for some. And you know why? Because in America, we have a culture of self-sufficiency and pride. That seems ridiculous. That seems overly spiritual. And you know what? The theme of the text is you need God that bad. Not just in your closet, but in community with other people. It should be a regular thing for the people of God pray and so blessing is a matter of his sovereignty not our striving and so in light of that let's close in prayer Yahweh you are the giver of life and blessing they both come from you they both are your sovereign property to withhold or dispense. And we mere mortals only exist on account of the life and blessing you have given. Thus we have no right or claim to more of that which we already do not deserve. We also have no right to moan or groan about the life and blessing you abundantly give to us or burdensomely withhold from others. They are your sovereign gifts, not our inalienable rights. So forgive us. Lord, in our own hearts, too often we are like the striving and conniving Rachel, seeing your blessing as a means for our own vain fulfillment instead of a means for your glory. Too often in our own hearts, we're like the desperate and despondent Leah who forgets of your early and abundant expressions of grace on account of petty jealousy for another. And these failures aren't just limited to these. We all push and pull and toil and spin for your blessing, even though it is not ours to earn, but to receive. And what's worse is that we not only demand blessing, but we want to receive it in a way in which we get the credit. Whereas your means of blessing is faithful, humble obedience, ours is one of personal, prideful human effort. Or pardon us for these despicable propensities. And so we rejoice then that the way that you give grace is not through cunning or craft, but through Christ. We rejoice that your blessings do not advance upon the rails of our intellectual capacity or emotional resilience, but upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus. As frequent failures, it is good news to us that you bless the broken, give life to the lifeless, reward the loser, and delight the downcast. And so it is on your sovereign grace now that we rely in Jesus' name. Amen.